I just want to share with you, John has been one of those pivotal persons in my own life, changing in a sense my history and our friendship going back really to middle school and high school. But then in college is where we got to know each other. In fact, I just I'll make I didn't tell this first service, but John was on our floor in in that first year. And uh, I met what I would call a a renaissance man or they say renaissance um, because he, he made like the men's choir there at the school that we went to, which was really hard to get into as a freshman. He can play the piano. He was an All-American in tennis. Academically, I mean, so we have to read this book. I think we let it go. He was in psychology. We were supposed to read this book, three, four hundred pages or something, and it was kind of due to talk about the next day. So, you know, I said, well, you know, he went to his room, I went to mine, and um, we're reading, and I'm, I'm maybe 100 pages into it, and I get a knock on the door, and he goes, let's go play basketball. I said, we got to get this thing done. He goes, oh, I read it. I said, you read that? And, yeah, yeah, I read it. And he actually understood it, which um, I didn't even get the first 100 pages. But anyway, I just, um, I, just, I just love my friend. And, John, I'm going to ask you to come forward, if you would, and, uh, and just share with us this morning. Um, we've had the opportunity... Probably one of the coolest things to do, and I would just say those of you who are younger, uh, maybe college and, and whatever age you're at, I guess, is when you have friends for a long time who know you to the core and, and you're vulnerable with, it's just not going and doing things externally, but you really get to know, treasure that, make that a goal in life. John, thanks for being here. Appreciate it. Thank you, Kevin. Well, I just, um, I'm thrilled to be here. It has been such a rich couple of days. Uh, my wife, Nancy, and I have been here and to get to be with Kevin and Grace and experience that wedding is great. And Kevin, you should know, uh, um, you opened huge doors of friendship to me, changed my life. And I'm so grateful for that. I roomed with Kevin for four years through college, probably just because he was the most prolific dater I ever saw. And I, I was... Just hoping to get some discards, which never really happened. But like my main amusement in college is Kevin's going out on a date. And I would when he was going to go out, I just say, you're not going to go out dressed in that, are you? And he'd say, Don't you think it looks all right? So I would try to see how many times I could get Kevin to change his clothes before he would go on a date. That was that's my that will tell you all you need to know about me. That's my main source of amusement all through college. So anyway, give you love to your family. And it's been a great time to be here. And I love to. Uh, as I've talked with Kevin about this church, be able to associate uh, names and faces and a place for it. And uh, so I'm really honored and especially honored to talk with you about this man. Jesus It's going to be kind of a different talk. It's going to be a lot of historical information. I my my bent and part of why I wrote this book is because so many folks in our world, believers or not, have no idea not just about Jesus in the Bible, but the impact that Jesus has had on our world. So this would be kind of different. I'm going to ask you to wade through a lot of information. And um, I know that. And just periodically, I may pause and ask you if you're with me. And when I do that, just say, yes, we're with you. Even if you're not with me, it'll make me feel better if you just say, yes, we're with you. Hey, are you with me? Are you really with me? Um, I live about 30 minutes south of a city called San Francisco. Why is there a San Francisco? Well, because there was once a man named Francis of Assisi. And he was filled with so much generosity and love that centuries later, people would name cities after him. And the reason he did that is because his life was changed by a man named Jesus. I live about 30 minutes north of a city called San Jose. Why is there a city called San Jose? Because a long time ago, there was a man named Joseph. 
And his life was changed by a man named Jesus. The state capital of the state where I live is called Sacramento. Why is there a Sacramento? Well, because one time a man named Jesus had a meal with some friends to commemorate the idea that God loves so much he's willing to suffer. And that meal became, hands down, the most famous meal in the history of humanity. So sacred, so holy, that it became called a sacrament. We came here to the Twin Cities and flew over St. Paul. Why is there a St. Paul? Because once there was a man named Paul and he changed the world, telling it about Jesus. We're now just a couple of hours away from Duluth. Why is there a city called Duluth? No one knows. Even Jesus does not know why there's a Duluth. There's just a Duluth. It's just there. You can't look at a map without being reminded of this man, Jesus. Every year, his birthday comes around. It's the most widely celebrated birthday in the world. Who's number two? The instrument on which he died, a cross, is the most famous symbol. Adorns more graves, more jewelry than any other symbol. No other symbol in the world is nearly as recognizable. His movement grows, even though those of us who follow him often don't have a clue what we're doing. This is from a guy named Eugene Peterson. Some of you know Eugene Peterson, wrote the Message Bible. Eugene writes about growing up in a Christian home but being picked as the victim of a bully in the second grade by a guy named Garrison Johns. And um, this is what Eugene Peterson writes about that experience. I had been prepared for the wider world of neighborhood and school by blessing, memorize those who persecute you, turn the other cheek. I don't know how Garrison Johns knew that about me, but he picked me for his sport. Most afternoons after school, he would catch me, beat me up, found out I was a Christian, he would taunt me with Jesus' sissy. I arrived home most afternoons bruised and humiliated, My mother told me, this had always been the way of Christians in the world. I better get used to it. I was also supposed to pray for him. One day, I was with seven or eight friends. Garrison caught up with us, started jabbing me, and that's when it happened. Something snapped. For a moment, the Bible verses disappeared from my consciousness. I grabbed Garrison. To my surprise and his, I was stronger than he was. I wrestled him to the ground, sat on his chest, pinned his arms with my knees, and he was helpless at my mercy. It was too good to be true. I hit him in the face with my fists. It felt good, and I hit him again. Blood spurted from his nose, a lovely crimson in the snow. I said to Garrison, say uncle. He wouldn't say it. I hit him again, more blood. Then my Christian training reasserted itself. I said, say I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. He wouldn't say it. I hit him again, more blood. I tried again, say I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And he said it. Garrison Johns was my first Christian convert. Jesus' influence endures despite those who would oppose him and very often despite those who try to follow him. Great historian at Yale, Yaroslav Pelikan, put it like this. And this kind of gets to what I want to do in this talk. Regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull up out of that history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? You have to ask yourself, forget what you think about religion, forget what you think about claims of divinity. 
Just without prejudice, think about Jesus for these moments as a person who lived, who was born, walked around, died. And then look honestly, without prejudice, at his impact on the world. You have to ask, who was this man? It's a little like, um, any of you see the old movie, It's a Wonderful Life? Remember George Bailey gets to ask that question, what would the world have looked like if he had never been born? Well, that's what I want to try to do for a few moments this morning with Jesus. And when you think about it, you know, he was not the kind of person that you would nominate as a world changer. Never led an army, never held an office, didn't rule a country, didn't write a book, did not travel widely, died when he was really young. His followers were incredibly unimportant. The New Testament records them being called unschooled ordinary men. And yet 2,000 years later, how do you imagine the world apart from him? Try to imagine the world apart from its most influential movement. Imagine a world with no church, no Notre Dame, no St. Paul's Cathedral, no storefront church in Watts, no house churches in China. And then all the people, no Peter, no Paul, no Timothy, no Augustine, no Joan of Arc, no uh, Francis of Assisi. No Mother Teresa, no Martin Luther, Martin Luther King, no Dietrich Bonhoeffer, no John Milton or John Wesley or John Calvin or John Bunyan or John the Baptist. But go all the way back to the beginning, to the idea of the church. In the ancient world, there were a lot of different ways to group human beings. There were nations, there were tribal religions, there were philosophical schools, there were ethnic groups, there were households. The church was none of these. Paul said, here in the church, there is no Greek or Jew, no circumcised or uncircumcised, no barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Where I live, there's a little amusement park called Disneyland. Anybody ever been to Disneyland or Disney World? There's a ride there called It's a Small World After All. You ever go on that ride? That song will drive you insane by the time that ride is done. People of every gender, every nationality, every status, all together. Where did that idea come from? Just think about this. Most people don't. Where before the church was there a movement that sought to include people of every ethnicity, of every language, of every culture, of every gender, of every status, to be loved and transformed? Do you understand Not only had there never been a community like this before, there simply had never been the idea of a community like this one before. It was his idea. And now here we are. And by the way, the 12 steps came directly out of something called the Oxford Group about a century ago, a community trying to reclaim the practices of Jesus for transformation. No Jesus, no 12 steps. Now, I'm not saying apart from Jesus, there never would have been an actionable vision of all the human race as a family. I'm just saying, as a matter of historical reality, it actually began with a poverty-stricken, crucified carpenter. Who was this man? Jesus changed how we think about history. Again, what we're talking about today, this is stuff, we live so close to all of this, we don't think about it. In our day, we expect to see progress. We'll do surveys and ask folks, do you think the next generation will be better off than the previous one? 
Do you understand? No one in the ancient world ever gave a survey like that. In the ancient world, cultures generally thought of existence in terms of cycles. Human existence was just an endless repetition, up and down and up and down and so. Events were dated, when they were, by rulers, year one of the reign of Augustus and so on. Over time, the power of every Caesar, their grip on the human imagination, faded. While another vision, an unlikely vision, grew more compelling. Until by the 6th century, half a millennium after his death, a Scythian monk said, we ought to have a calendar based not on the myth of the founding of Rome, but on the fact of the birth of Jesus. The creation of the calendar, see, was not just a timekeeping device, it was an idea, it was a claim. That life is not a random cycle. That life has a meaning. That life is leading somewhere. And that the critical moment in all of human existence was the entry of this man, Jesus. The staggering thought. Jesus himself lived and died, and Caesar, during Jesus' lifetime, never heard a hint of his existence. He's called, still in the first century, by his disciple John, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's a phrase in the Bible. We'll hear it sometimes at Christmas time. It just sounds like poetry. You don't think much about it. It is an idea. It is a claim. Take all the kings, all the power brokers, all the CEOs, all the fat cats, put them all in a group. Jesus is king over them. He's not just king, not just the greatest king. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of Lords. Now, in the first century, while Jesus still had only a few number of followers, such a claim was absolutely laughable. Are you kidding me? This guy, a few thousand people, dead now for decades, King of Kings? If you were around in the first century and you had to bet on whose influence would last longer, Jesus or the Roman Empire, Nobody in their right mind was putting money on this carpenter and his motley crew. And yet today, 2,000 years later, we still give our children names like Peter and Paul and Mary. And we now give our dogs names like Caesar and Nero. 2,000 years after his birth, every time any human being anywhere on the planet looks at the date, we are reminded daily that this Jesus has become the hinge of history, that Nero died in the year of our Lord, 68, that the great Napoleon died in the year of our Lord, 1821, that the mighty tyrant Joseph Stalin died in the year of our Lord, 1953. Maybe Jesus was not King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But how strange that now every ruler who ever reigned, every nation that ever rose or ever fell, must be dated in reference to the life of this carpenter. Who was this man? Jesus changed how we shape compassion. Again, this is not widely known. All human beings have the capacity for compassion, but Jesus shaped this in ways that our culture tends not to understand, although we benefit from hugely. In the ancient world, in Greece and Rome, it was the strong, the beautiful, the wealthy that were admired and looked up to. The weak and the marginalized, they were not generally valued. The sickly, in the first century, a Roman philosopher named Seneca wrote, we drown children at birth when they are weak and abnormal. This wasn't considered something to be embarrassed about. It wasn't hidden. That's just how humanity was viewed. 
In the ancient world, a child could be left to die, and often was, if it was born the wrong gender. Anybody want to guess which gender was the wrong gender? That would be women. So Sheldon's name, Rodney Stark, estimates in the ancient world, for every 1.3 or 1.4 million males, there were about 1 million females. What happened to the other three or 400,000? They were left to die, to be exposed at birth, because they were the wrong gender. This is actually encoded in law in Rome. If you're a citizen, if you had a boy, you were legally obligated to raise it. But after the first girl, you were not. They could just be left to die. But these followers of Jesus remembered they followed a man who said, let the little children come to me. And he blessed them. And they actually took in abandoned children. And they began the practice of godparents who would care for children when their birth parents died. And then they began orphanages. People would begin, the way they started was, people would uh, leave their little children that they wanted to abandon at the foot of a Christian community or a monastery, rather than leaving them in the wilderness. And these changes, and other ones with children being sold into slavery, being used for sexual gratification, real common in the ancient world, these changes became so powerful, one book about them is simply titled, When Children Became People, The Birth of Childhood. In early Christianity. Now we live in a different world. Widows who were actually fined by Rome for surviving past their husbands. They were considered a drag on the economy. It was like, you know, embarrassing. Just a bad idea to survive your husband. But they were taken in and cared for by the church. Because the church, remember, they followed a man who, when he was dying on the cross, said to John as he looked at his mom, Behold your mother. Take care of her like she's your mom. In the first three centuries of the church, there were two major epidemics that destroyed up to a third of whole populations. And you think for a moment, in the Twin Cities, if a third of the population was to be wiped out, no medicine, highly contagious, no way to stop it, what would happen? One ancient writer says, it created such a panic in the general population that at the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treating unburied corpses as dirt hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. That was the ancient world. But then there were people in this strange little community called the church. And they would actually bring in sick people they didn't know to whom they were not related and care for them at risk to their own life because they remembered they followed this guy named Jesus and he used to touch lepers. And he used to heal the sick and the lame. And he said one time, whatever you do for the least of these. And see, they took that seriously. And that changed the world. Not their ability to argue, not their ability to take over a culture, just that they began to live the way that he lived. And they loved the least of these. By about the fourth century, a follower of Jesus named Benedict began what was essentially the first hospital. By about the sixth century, monasteries commonly were required to have these hospitals to care for the suffering attached to them. And over time, this idea, see, this is an idea, we take it for granted, it has not always governed the human race. This idea that all suffering people deserve our compassion began to take root. 
And eventually a group of people got together at something called the Geneva Convention, and they formed an organization to alleviate human suffering. They chose as a symbol a large cross on a flag. It's called the Red Cross, begun by a follower of Jesus. Whenever you hear of groups with names like the Salvation Army, or World Vision, or the YMCA, or Goodwill, or Easter Seals, or Habitat for Humanity, or Food for the Hungry, when you go to a hospital and it's got a name like the Good Samaritan, or St. Anthony's, or Good Shepherd, you see the touch of Jesus. The autistic, or the Down syndrome, or the disabled, or the mentally ill, the broken. These were viewed by our ancestors in the ancient world as burdens to just be discarded. We drown them. To see them instead as people who bear divine glory that can teach us and ennoble us. That's one of the gifts of Jesus to our world. Now, this is not to say that there would be no compassion apart from Christianity. And God knows how often we who call ourselves Christians far fall short. But one scholar put it like this. If you ask what is Jesus' influence on medicine and compassion, I would suggest, now you think about this, Wherever you have an institution of self-giving for the lowly, schools, hospitals, hospices, orphanages, for those who will never be able to repay, this probably has its roots in the movement of Jesus. Who was this man? Y'all still with me? Jesus changed the way that we think about education. Human beings have always loved to learn. We always have. That's what we love doing. But in the ancient world, education formally was reserved for the wealthy male children of elite families. But the church remembered that they followed a man who just taught everybody and commanded them, in his final words, to go and teach everybody. So they began to teach everybody, women as well as men, slaves as well as free. About the 4th century, some of them entered into special communities, monastic communities. And they loved to learn so much that for several centuries, the, bless you, for several centuries, this is a church, you know, it's okay to just bless somebody when something like that happens. Um, uh, we bless people because of Jesus, by the way. That's just one more gift. When you sneeze, it's because of Him. Um, uh, for centuries, these monastic communities were the only places in all of Europe Wonderful little book written about this called How the Irish Saved Civilization. Because they would copy not just the scriptures and sacred texts, but the great pagan texts of classical literature were saved by followers of Jesus. Because they loved to love the Lord their God with all their mind. Churches began to build schools. And then to form scholarly guilds through monasteries that were the beginnings of university. University of Paris, around the 12th century. And then Cambridge and Oxford. The motto of Oxford University to this day, the motto of Oxford is, the Lord is my light. And then eventually Harvard and Yale. 92% of all the colleges and universities founded in America before the Civil War were founded in his name. With the Reformation came the idea that every individual should be able to read the Bible. And that's what ignited the dream for universal literacy. Again, we take that for granted. The ancient world, uh, in the best parts, maybe 3 to 5% of the general population would be literate. Where did that dream come from? Well, there were people that said, every boy, every girl ought to be able to read about Jesus for themselves. 
And Martin Luther said he was going to go after parents that did not do that for their children, because many, even in his day, did not. Luther said he was going to write a book about parents who neglect the education of their children. This is what Luther wrote. I shall really go after the shameful, despicable, damnable parents who are not parents at all, but despicable hogs and venomous beasts devouring their own young. Luther had a hard time expressing his emotions sometimes, just getting it all out. In America, I'm not making this up, in America, the first law to require public funding for mass education, you know, we'll grouse about taxes and so sometimes, the first law to require public funding for every child to be educated was called the Old Deluder Satan Act. We don't have snappy names for legislation like that anymore. The Old Deluder Satan Act in Massachusetts back in the 1600s because they said it's actually the evil one who wants to keep human beings in darkness and ignorance. And it is God who loves when minds get thrown up, get, get thrown wide open by the quest for truth. In fact, another guy by the name of Alfred North Whitehead, one of the dominant thinkers of the 20th century, he was asked one time, what is it that allowed science to emerge when it did? And this is what Whitehead said. He said, it was the medieval insistence on the rationality of God. Fascinating response. The idea was that it takes a certain kind of mindset, a certain kind of attitude for the method of science to arise. And among other things, it required a belief that physical reality is not just random, it's not chaotic, that it was actually created by a rational God, because that meant then that it would be worthwhile to apply rational methods to studying it. What enabled the rise of science, Whitehead said, was the medieval insistence on the rationality of God. Now, that's not to say that science wouldn't or couldn't have arisen otherwise, but the fact is, another scholar puts it like this, science as an organized, sustained enterprise arose only once in human history, in Europe, in the civilization then called Christendom. The great explosion of technology in the Middle Ages was in these monastic communities. Mechanical clocks were invented because monks needed to know when to pray. We first read about eyeglasses in a sermon because monks needed to pour over the sacred texts. Dom Perignon was actually the name of a Benedictine monk who contributed to the production of champagne because there were no Baptists to tell him it was a sin to drink it. The alphabet, yeah, there's applause for that one in there. Um, alphabet of the Slavs is called Cyrillic because the Slavic peoples had no written alphabet. So a follower of Jesus, a missionary named St. Cyril, created one for them so that they could read the Bible. That's where Cyrillic comes from. In nation after nation, Christian missionaries, followers of Jesus, found languages that had not been committed to writing. And in acts of stupendous heroism and self-sacrifice, they set about to the task. In many cases, the first scientific study of languages was from followers of Jesus. They compiled the first dictionaries. They wrote the first grammars, they developed the first alphabets. The first important name written in many, many languages was the name Jesus. The Gospels are translated into more than 2,200 languages. No other book is translated into one-fifth that... Ma Who was this man? 
The Jesus movement revolutionized art. Without Jesus, there's no Dante, whose divine comedy shaped modern Italian. There's no Martin Luther, whose German Bible shaped modern German. There's no King James Bible, which along with Shakespeare, the primary shaper of modern English. There is no Johannes Bach, who signed all of his works to the glory of God. There is no Hallelujah Chorus, no Mozart Requiem, no Gregorian Chants. By the way, modern music notation, Do, Re, Mi, was an invention of the medieval church so that the worship of Jesus could spread. Those little syllables, Do, Re, Mi, are taken from an ancient poem, a song of the worship of him. Imagine a world with no Sistine Chapel, no Da Vinci's Last Supper, no Pieta, no Justin Bieber Christmas album. There simply has been no transcendent vision of reality that has gripped the artistic imagination with its beauty and meaning like the vision Jesus had of human existence. His movement changed political theory. Jesus said one day, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. Now, the idea that there were things that did not belong to Caesar would have come as news to Caesar. Jesus said one day, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, the idea that there is a kingdom that is real, but not of this world. See, that's a claim. It became one of the most influential statements in political history. Up until that moment, it was generally assumed in the ancient world that the state had the franchise on religion because that's what the ruler, the despot, the guy in charge, needed to use to help hold things together. Religion itself, that word is related to our word for ligament, what holds everything together. There was no such word or phrase in the ancient world as state church because there was no other kind. It's just assumed. If you had power, of course you had that power. They did not in the ancient world. They didn't talk about believing in God. They talked about having gods. When you went to a new place, you had some new gods. But from Jesus, then through Augustine, Martin Luther, John Locke, developed this notion of limited government. That kings themselves will answer to a higher power. That a state should not run religion or the other way around. It took a long time for this to kind of percolate and unfold. Christians often get around. As a general rule, we tend to do much, much worse following Jesus when we have political power or think we can use it coercively than when we don't. But he changed the world. He changed how we think of human rights and dignity. Think about this sentence. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal, have been endowed by their creator with certain rights. Now, see, there's a whole bunch of ideas in that. That human beings are created by a creator. That they have been endowed. That they have been endowed with rights. That they are made equal, equal in worth and dignity. Those truths were not self-evident to Caesar. They were not self-evident to Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan. Where did that idea come from? We live in that world, see. They're associated with another idea about a creator. You will often hear people in our day say, I believe in a God of love. See, that's an idea. I believe in a God of love. Nobody in the ancient world, nobody said, I love Zeus. Nobody said, I love Baal or I love Molech. Where did that idea come from that there is a God who is worthy of being loved, that there is a lovable God, that there is a God who does love, that there is a God who is interested in being loved? 
Jesus brought from little Israel to the rest of the world a new way of thinking about God and love. That's an idea. came from somewhere. When I was a kid, I loved playing this game, Daddy's Home. Late in the afternoon, I would hear the door. I would go running down the stairs, jump into his arms. I knew that his arms would be wide open. They didn't even have to look. He would catch me and hold me. And I loved playing that game for years. And then one day, my mom told me I would have to stop. I said, why? My dad couldn't even bring himself to tell me. My mom told me, why do I have to stop? She said, well, it's not that your dad doesn't love you, because he does. It's not that he won't always be there for you, because he will. It's just that you're 37 years old. Sooner or later, human arms get a little weak and tired and flabby. And Jesus said that God is like a father who is racked by tormented love for his most wayward child. And this has real serious implications. So it's written, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You all are one in Christ Jesus. Thomas Cahill writes, this is the first expression of egalitarianism in human history. Neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. There is another category now that will define human worth and dignity. And in that one, all humanity is one. That's an idea. Where'd that one come from? Now, often, supposedly Christians, individuals, and churches, and nations violate this. But the power of Jesus' teaching has a subversive way of refusing to stay submerged. And that's why reform movements, like the abolition of slavery, or for civil rights, or for women's rights, were, from the beginning, so often dominated by followers of Jesus. He uniquely taught, love your enemies. Again, in our day, we think of something like forgiveness as just, of course, everybody admires that. The idea that you were to love your enemy was not admired in the ancient world. What was admired in the ancient world was helping your friends and harming your enemies, hurting your enemies. There are actually monographs written about this line of thought in ancient Greece, in ancient Rome, helping friends, hurting enemies. But there was once a man who said, Somebody strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. Somebody forces you to go with them one mile, go with them two. Love your enemy. Bless those who curse you. And those were not just words. When he died, he prayed for those who were killing him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. I don't know how you do with that. But his followers couldn't forget. We're told by one ancient writer, mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. They were torn by dogs and perished, or nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames. Nero would take followers of Jesus, cover them with pitch, and use them as human torches to light gladiator games. And this went on, on and off, For three centuries. And their response was not to dream of revenge. It was not to start an armed revolt. 
It was not to divide the world up into us versus them and say, we're going to take the culture back. We're going to get the power because we don't like them. They just prayed for Nero. He'd kill him. And they'd love him. They'd bless him. What, what do you do with people like that? How do you stop that? Who was this man? Forget about divinity. Forget about whether or not you believe in God. Just who, who would do this? He inspired a man named Tolstoy. 1900 years later. Tolstoy wrote a book called Resurrection. And that book in turn inspired a lawyer by the name of Gandhi to start a community movement of reconciliation at that time in South Africa. The last letter that Tolstoy wrote beyond his family was to a man named Gandhi to praise this self-sacrificing love of a man named Jesus. In the most famous speech in America in the 20th century, a man named Martin Luther King Jr. departed from his script to quote the prophet. You can watch this here. Go on YouTube and take a look at King giving his I have a dream speech. a fascinating moment. There's a time when he leaves his manuscript and he just spontaneously quotes from the prophet Amos about the day is going to come one day when justice will roll like waters, righteousness like a mighty stream. And when he quotes the Bible at that point, the crowd can't keep quiet and they start shouting out back at King tell it Martin preach it amen keep going like a church crowd not like this church crowd apparently but <laughs> like the kind that answers you back when you're talking and King you watch this he can't go back to his script and from behind him like out of the choir Mahalia Jackson shouts out tell him about the dream Martin and he starts telling him about the dream I have a dream one day I have a dream about a world that is not yet, but one day is going to be. I have a dream when my children one day will be judged, not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. See, that is not a secular dream. I have a dream when one day little black children and little white children will join hands around a table of reconciliation and fellowship. That is a dream of shalom that was loved by the prophets and proclaimed and lived for and died for and resurrected for by a man named Jesus. See, the real question is not, who was this man? The real question is, who is this man? I will tell you who he is. He is the hinge of history. He is the hope of the oppressed. He is the inspiration of the despairing. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the greatest teacher who ever taught. He is the greatest mind that ever thought. He offered the greatest gift ever given. He wants the greatest movement ever known. He is the only one to master life. And he is the only one to master Master death, he alone overcame sin. He alone grows more present with every passing year. He is the Son of God. He is the glory of humankind. This crucified carpenter of Nazareth is the hope of the nations and the Savior of the world. And that's who this man is. God bless you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much.